Please uh, turn again to uh, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, the passage we read together in 1 Peter. I feel like I start every sermon by saying thank you to the congregation for your, your support and your, your encouragement, but I really do mean that. Um, thank you. It's been about a month since I started. It's really flown in. Um, so as we look to God's word this morning, maybe as you, as you think about that passage we read, or just as you glance at it now in your, in your Bible, maybe you feel a bit like a, like a certain children's book character, um, a bit like, maybe you feel a bit like Bruce Bogtrotter. Do you know who, do you know Bruce Bogtrotter? Uh, from that book, uh, what is it, Matilda? The, the Roald Dahl book, Matilda. Who's Bruce Bogtrotter? Well, he's one of the children in the school and he gets caught, doesn't he? He gets caught eating a slice of the, the principal's cake, Trunchbull's cake. And how does he have to serve his punishment? Well, he sits down and in front of him is set this massive, stodgy, three-tiered, triple chocolate fudge cake. And his punishment, maybe sounds good to some of us, he has to eat the whole thing. And what does Brucey do? Well, he rises to the challenge. He eats the whole cake. But then he collapses in exhaustion at what he's just done. And maybe as you look at this passage, you can see what I'm talking about. This passage is rich. It's dense. It's rich with theology. It's dense with encouragement. It's, it's multi-layered with Trinitarian language. And it all comes together in a heady mixture of praise and blessing to God. So this morning, what I propose, rather than taking the, the whole cake, as it were, uh, that we just take one slice. So we're just going to take our slice, at verses 3 through 5. That's what we're going to look at together. And we're going to see why it is that, that, that Peter is just so excited. Uh, we'll do that together. We'll do that in three headings, three points that will help us understand why Peter is so keen to, to be bursting in praise to God. But, but before we do that, before we look at it together, uh, let's, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you that you are worthy of all uh, praise and honor. Um, and we thank you that you have promised to, to meet with your people as we gather together. So we ask, Father, now that you would meet with us. May we know your help. Speak to us now through your word. So we ask it in, in Jesus' name. So our first, our first heading then, our first reason for Peter's praise, God has been merciful. God has been merciful. Peter, we know Peter, uh, he's that disciple of Jesus Christ that we read about in the Gospels. And he, he's writing a letter uh, addressed to, to Christians. He's writing to Christians who are uh, dispersed uh, throughout an area uh, sort of southern Asia Minor, modern Turkey. And he's, he's writing to them, he addresses them as elect exiles. These are people chosen by God, but who find themselves spread around the Roman world. And following this amazing uh, threefold greeting in the name of the Father who foreknew them, 
uh, the Spirit who sanctifies them, and in the name of Jesus Christ, who they obey and live life under his blood. Uh, following this greeting, he bursts out into praise. Look at uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He can't get two paragraphs into his letter, and already he is bursting with, with praise to God. He says that God himself is, is blessed. Blessed be God. We're, we're used to hearing language of being blessed, I think, in our day and age, at least you look on uh, social media. Uh, but I think usually it's to do with, with possessions, with, with things that we own. So a new car, I'm blessed. Get a new house, I'm blessed. Get a new job, oh, I'm blessed. But really here, for, when we're talking about God, it's not about what he possesses primarily, although he is God of the universe, all things belong to him. Really, when it comes to God, it's about who he is that makes him blessed. The one who is blessed is one who is worthy of praise. God is blessed because he is worthy of adoration. We'll come to see why that is uh, in a moment. Before we get there, do, do you notice how Peter describes God or how he addresses God? In verse 3, he praises the God who is Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is important. It's important for several reasons. Um, but if I could, I'd just, I'd just like to pick two reasons, two reasons that that is important. Number one, this is a, a clear example of the very earliest Christians recognizing that Jesus Christ is divine. Having already said in these opening two verses that Jesus is to be obeyed, mentioning him in the same breath as the Father and the Spirit, he is called here in, in no uncertain terms the Son of God. That's number one, Jesus is divine. Number two is the exclusivity of the identity of God. So the God of these Christians, the God of these elect exiles, he's described as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's not simply praising the gods of ancient Rome. He's not addressing a kind of vague, nondescript God who's up there somewhere. There's no, there's no comparable deity whenever it comes to, to this God. God is the Father of Jesus Christ, revealed in the Scriptures. There is no other God. So having looked at who this God is that's being praised, who is worthy of adoration, why? Why is this God worthy of praise? Well, as we go through the sermon, we'll, we'll look at why this God is worthy of praise. We'll see what he has done, the actions that he has undertaken that make him worthy of praise. But before we get to the why, uh, we need to look at, uh, sorry, before we get to the what he has done, we need to look at the why behind what he has done. And we see that again in, in verse 3. After this amazing blessing, he says, according to his great mercy. 
we've been thinking about how Peter addresses God specifically in terms of his relationship with Jesus Christ. And now with, with Jesus on his mind, he's come to, he comes to consider the mercy of God. Mercy, mercy, is that, is that sort of special uh, pity or, or compassion towards those in need? Yes, it's a, it's a special uh, frame of mind towards those in need. But, but perhaps here we could say it's maybe more than that. It's maybe more than people who are in need. When we think of our relationship to God outside of, of Jesus Christ, surely it's, it's more than the need that we have. And the Bible makes it clear that outside of Christ, we, we are enemies of God. We, we have offended God by our sin. And as we think of God's mercy, really we don't, we don't need to look much further than really the first word of this letter. The first word of chapter 1, verse 1. Friends, who, who has written this letter? Peter. Peter, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, Maybe you don't have to think very hard about how Peter knew all about the mercy of God. Peter had, had boldly proclaimed to his Lord Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll never leave you. And yet as, as Jesus is being carried away to his trial before the crucifixion, Peter denies him. He denies him three times with oaths and with cursings. He makes himself not a follower of, of Jesus, but an enemy of Jesus. Clearly, that's not how the, the story ends for, for Peter, is it? We wouldn't be re reading this letter if that was the case. No, G Peter is restored back to fellowship by the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. And he would then go on to be a great leader uh, in the early church. We have this letter that he's written, and we see him delighting in that mercy of God. So the question posed for us this morning by Scripture, the question we have to consider is this, have you experienced the mercy of God? like Peter has. Have you, an enemy of God, known that forgiveness that Peter did? Although Peter denied Jesus on his way to the crucifixion, you can be forgiven by that same crucifixion. <clears throat> As Jesus died in the place of, yes, those who are in need but but much more than that he died for those who were his enemies go to jesus seek his mercy today that's our first point that's our first reason why peter is erupting with praise because god has been merciful our second point the second reason 
uh, that Peter praises God is this, because God has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. I expect most people in this room will, will know what I mean by an influencer. Do you know what an influencer is? It, it's someone on your, probably on your social media feeds who uh, tries to convince you of your most recent deep need of a new water bottle or a trendy nutrient supplement that will get you through the day. Uh, well, when I speak about influencers, I want to say that, that Peter had been influenced. He's come under the influence of someone. But this time, it's not about the latest organizational app on your phone uh, or the latest viral workout trend. No, he's been influenced uh, by the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 3. According to his great mercy, he, that is God, has caused us to be born again. Born again. He has caused us to be born again. Does that ring in your ear? Like a catchy radio jingle? Where have you heard born again before? We just think back to the Gospels. Think about John's Gospel. Uh, John chapter 3. Jesus himself meets uh, an influencer of his time. He meets uh, Nicodemus. What does he say to him at that time? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Peter is picking up on the same motif here as he draws on the teaching of his master and his Lord. To be, to be born again is to become a, a new creation in Christ as we are forgiven and adopted into God's family. We're told here that, that God has caused this. It's him who has caused us to be born again. We are passive in this new birth as we were passive in our natural birth. It doesn't end with being born again. You see, if you look at verse 3 closely, we have been born again to something. Firstly, born again to a living hope. And secondly, in verse 4, born again to an inheritance. Two things we've been born again to. Two as it were, subpoints in this middle point to consider. First, born again to a living hope. What is a living hope? Maybe it's worth considering what, what life was like for these uh, people, that, that these Christians that Peter's writing to, to better understand this. They are, they are exiles. That's what we're told at the start, isn't it? These are exiles. They're strangers. Strangers in a strange land. They've uh, been scattered away from their homeland, uh, perhaps leaving behind family, what was all familiar to them. At this point, uh, they are I mean, a minority religion in the empire, and soon, very soon, will come under fierce persecution for what they believe. Not least Peter himself, who will be killed for his faith. It can sound pretty hopeless. But that's why Peter wants to, to remind them 
uh, of this living hope that they have, a, a hope that's, that's vibrant and bristling with vigor and, and light. Uh, this, this hope, it, it fizzes and, and it sings with anticipation of something greater yet to come. Something which, which comes to us. Well, well, how does it come to us? Look again. Second half of verse 3. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These Christians, they have hope because Jesus rose from the dead. And Christian here today, you have that same hope. Peter is writing as an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. He meets with the risen Lord. He speaks with the risen Lord. He eats with Jesus after his resurrection. Not, not a figment of his imagination, but he eats and speaks and meets with Jesus in the presence of, of many others as well. Friends, this morning, never lose sight of that hope in the resurrection. The gospel of the risen Christ is the central hub in the wheel of our hope holds everything together. If Jesus Christ is, is not risen, we Christians, we are, we're to be pitied more than anyone. But praise God, Jesus is risen. And this resurrection is for us, is for our justification, so that we may stand forgiven before God. But this resurrection, it, it also guarantees our resurrection too. Jesus is the first fruits of a future resurrection when we who are united to him by faith, well, we will also be raised in the last days. So Christian, do you, do you feel hopeless this morning? Maybe you've bought into the materialistic, existentialist philosophies of our day that say there's, there's nothing more than, than this. There's nothing more to look forward to or to find your joy in. Christian, find your hope in the resurrected Jesus this morning, living and ascended in heaven and anticipate an eternal future with him. And this, this future hope, this leads us to the second thing we've been born again to. We've been born again to a living hope. Now consider, secondly, born again to an inheritance. Born again to an inheritance. We all, we all know what inheritance is, do we? Don't need to dwell on that too long, perhaps. Other than to say that our view of an inheritance is maybe a little bit different than the Christians that Peter was writing to. So what, what do you think of when you think of inheritance? You maybe, maybe you think of money or jewelry or, or art, stamp collection, whatever it might be that you're due to inherit. Well, for these exiled Christians that, that Peter is, is writing to, many of whom would have been Jewish, and an inheritance is more likely to be associated with, with land, not just, not just land in general, um, but, but the land of, of Canaan, the promised land. 
not inheritance. We know from the kings of, of Israel and uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, that inheritance, it was never secure. It was always under threat from those around and from those within. So when we come to this inheritance that Peter is speaking about, he's keen to emphasize that this inheritance is different from that inheritance. Look at the words he uses to describe it in verse 4. Look with me at verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable, untouched by death and decay, undefiled, unstained by evil, unfading, unaffected by time, and kept in heaven for you. Look at how unshakable this inheritance is. Unlike the, the promised land, which was so changeable, or our earthly inheritances, which fade with time, or are, are prone to decay, this inheritance it will never change. It will never fade or decay. And what's more, someone, someone else is looking after it. It's being kept for us in heaven. We can't lose it in the corner of a dusty attic. It can't be stolen by a thief in the night. And in all of life that, that comes and, and goes, what's temporary and transient, dear Christian, for you this morning, you are set to claim an inheritance that comes with a full guarantee we've seen Peter's exclamation of praise to God so far seeing his praise for the mercy of God and praise for causing us to be born again we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection and to an inheritance that will never change fade or decay and it's come now to our, our final cause for praise now God will guard us God will guard us until the last time. And that's verse five, as you look down in your Bibles this morning. Tell me this, what's your, what's your favorite flower? I need to be careful with my accent. <laughs> I, don't mean, uh, I don't mean self-raising or wholemeal flower. Um, what's your favorite flower? Uh, do, you, do you like roses or, or snowdrops? That, that kind of flower. Well, for, for some uh, Christians, their favorite, they, they really like tulips. Uh, for some, five letters of the word tulip, they sum up neatly what is distinctive about what we call Reformed theology. T-U-L-I-P. Each stands for uh, something and you can speak to me, speak to the elders about what they all mean. But for the purposes of this morning, we're going to look at that last one, the letter P. What does P stand for in tulip? It stands for perseverance of the saints. Did you get that? Perseverance of the saints. As we look at verse 5, that's that's what we're dealing with now, really, isn't it? 
Is this perseverance of the saints, is that just a dry, dusty doctrine? I want to show you that it absolutely isn't. Um, It's useful and it's helpful for you in your daily walk as a Christian. So what is the perseverance of the saints? Let's read a definition laid out in our confession. This is the Westminster Confession, chapter 17, article 1. Read this and hear just how helpful this is. Those who God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Is that not so reassuring to you as a Christian this morning? Christians accepted in Christ, called and sanctified by the Spirit, cannot totally or finally fall away, but will persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Why is that the case? How can this happen? Well, it's it's because of verse five. Christians are guarded by God's power, being guarded through faith. We are guarded from the harms of the evil one who would seek to kill our living hope, who would seek to steal away our inheritance. More than a promise, it's something that we're entitled to An inheritance is often something you're promised, but you don't have yet. But this is something we are entitled to. So now those of us who are in Christ, we're waiting. We're patiently waiting for a salvation. We're waiting for our inheritance. Peter uh, will go on uh, to use all sorts of words in his letter to describe salvation. He'll speak of it uh, as a wonderful light, as a generous gift of life, as a crown of glory, an eternal glory. Well, in these opening few verses that we've looked at together, the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, really that's, that's the same as the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. We're sometimes guilty of only referring to salvation in in the past tense. I was saved at such and such a time. But Christian friend, this morning, there is a future dimension to our salvation as well. We have been saved in the past from the guilt of our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are, present tense, presently being saved from the power of sin. And looking ahead in the future, we will, we will be saved in the last time when Christ returns and we are finally freed from the presence of sin for all eternity. This is the hope we have to look forward to, a salvation ready to be revealed. So to end, as we ponder the future revealing of a 
salvation in the last time, we, we must ask, do you think about the return of Jesus? Does the reality of his second coming make a difference to, to how you live from day to day? In the next few months, we're, we're going to sing a lot of songs about uh, the incarnation, and that's a beautiful thing. We speak together often of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and that's, that's right, that's absolutely right. But have you allowed the truth of the future return of Jesus Christ to influence your life today? He will come again. He will judge the world in righteousness. All that is wrong will be made right. All the injustices of this world will be corrected. He will wipe away every tear from our eye. And surely in light of this, we have hope for tomorrow. Surely this will influence how we deal with life's hardships. And surely we can, we can echo the words of Peter at verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now.